Welcome to the Circular Innovation Podcast. Join us as we dive deep and explore the concept of circular innovation and how it's reshaping brands, technology, and operations. Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Circular Innovation Podcast. I'm your co-host, Richard Bliss, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. Jessica Schistler, the co-founder and CEO of Maven Circular. And Nate Schistler, co-founder and chief maven of Maven Circular. You know, this is a lot of fun. As we've had these conversations, there's so much that's going on in the world right now when it comes to a circular economy. And I think it's been rising in the awareness as brands start to recognize whether it's a financial incentive, it's an environmental uh, initiative, whatever it might be. But as vendors who are looking to service these folks, they've got some challenges, don't they? Um, because it's not a cookie cutter, one size fit all. Yeah, really. And this is, you know, this is an area that Nate's an expert in, in terms of working really closely with the technology providers, um, which sometimes have an operation and sometimes don't have an operation. Um, so, Nate, when you think about, you know, where you spend a lot of your time, what kind of pillars are those in, in those conversations in terms of winning business with different brands? Yeah, the the market is really interesting right now. It's not... Um... When you think about a competitive landscape, the assumption that kind of generally comes to mind is that you have a lot of vendors competing for a small subset of potential customers, a relatively tight kind of serviceable market. But what we see right now in, in re-commerce and, and really in the areas that we focus in the kind of like brand certified re-commerce is that there's, a, there's literally a handful of providers out there. Um, and they're all competing to work with the same brands. So there's probably, you know, if I were to put a number on it in, in the U.S. today, there are probably 300, maybe 400 brands that in the next 18 months are seriously considering launching uh, some type of brand certified or branded re-commerce channel, uh, which would be, you know, a 3x growth from the number of brands that have them today. But there's only, I mean, I'm just counting off the top of my head, like five providers to service that market. And so all the brands are talking to everybody, um, you know, like kind of like everybody's talking to everybody, <laughs> like cliche. And so, you know, when I think about like, how do we facilitate one of those providers in a pursuit with a brand, you know, I think of the Woody Allen quote, like 90% of success is showing up. Like the first thing you gotta do is get your foot in the door. You've gotta find a person at the brand, you know, the right person, who can champion the program and get in conversation with them and make sure that they know that you and your company have the ability to service uh, their brand. And I think what for, what, might, what makes this even like more challenging is the fact that all of the re-commerce platform providers out there today, they all offer a service that's slightly different. So there's no commonality. There's some similarities, but there's certainly unique differences. So this makes it challenging for brands who are putting out an RFP to really distinguish, um, you know, one provider from another because their service offering is slightly different. And it's also frankly compounded by the fact that every single one of these providers today is a startup. They're all venture backed startups. They're all in, you know, very early stage, uh, of, of their startup journey. Um, you know, Trove certainly is like the furthest along when we look across the landscape, but if I'm a brand. Uh, looking to launch a re-commerce channel, I have to be okay with the risk of putting that channel in the hands of a startup that may or may not be 
um, on the path to success and, and may or may not be around in a year or two as the market kind of goes through ups and downs and, and acquisitions and et cetera. So a clarification about... Sorry, Jess, go ahead. That's okay. So when you think about when you're working with, you know, Arrive or Trove or Archive and, you know, all of these different providers, are there, like, do you have a handbook on one of the five different things to bring to a brand to to begin those conversations? Because I know in my experience working, you know, closely with you on this and and some of these providers that often just getting in the door is probably the hardest part mm-hmm. because, you know, the the teams that are the drivers behind these programs, it's not it's not a cookie cutter. Every brand, they all they're all under supply chain or they're all under finance. It's it's a little bit different. Yep. So, you know, as you're advising, you know, the those um, providers, what are the the different categories that you were yeah. you're walking in and, and supporting them and and making sure that they're coming in and looking at all the different angles. Yeah, I definitely wish there was a playbook. If there, if we ever write one, we'll get it up on Amazon right <laughs> away. But I think that it, there's, um, I think you have to start with the perspective of making sure that that your proposal and early engagement in those conversations, you are articulating to the brand or prospective brand client what's in it for them, because brands today if you're if you're elite especially in the apparel space if you're a leading brand in fashion and apparel you are getting bombarded with cold emails cold calls cold linkedin messages um from providers and kind of related reverse logistics service providers that want to service you in some way and the first thing to making that proposal stand out is figuring out what that brand really needs and, and making that like slide number two. This is what we think you need and this is how we can address that need. And I think it's a bit counterintuitive to kind of what we've been taught from, um, you know, like business school is that, you know, you're, you're supposed to find out from the client what they need and then meet that need. But in this space right now, most of these brands, most of these companies are not actually sure what they need. And they're willing to take the advice and counsel of the platform providers in the space and saying, we think kind of have to have a bit of guts to do this from a sales perspective, but you've got to be willing to say very early in that cold engagement, we think this is what you need and this is how we can address that need. And when we're, you know, we've sat down several times, Nate, and we've built out, you know, what these decks would look like and and how we would, you know, position it. And we spend a lot of time looking at the economics and looking at the financial side of things. Um, maybe did you want to walk through what what you've shared in the past and and how that often lands for yeah. brands? Yeah. I mean, in our experience, um, winning proposals and certainly like winning a deal has a whole lot to do with the amount of effort that gets put into the financial uh, metrics and the financial kind of forecasting and budgeting related to that program. The, the reality of re-commerce, this is kind of like the very unsexy reality of it, is that a significant portion of it is really cost recovery on, on the part of the brand. Um, unless you are, you know, Rolex, who recently launched a, a brand certified, uh, like used program, it's difficult for your average apparel company to make a re-commerce channel that is profitable 
when you truly consider the total landed cost of a re-commerce unit. So when you burden that re-commerce unit with the original landed cost of that unit, plus the cost to reprocess it and ship it back out to guest number two or customer number two, it's super expensive. Um, but if you're breaking even at the end of all of that, then you're still coming out ahead because you're you're covering up for that otherwise written off cost. But this is where the homework has to be really, the provider really has to do their homework in terms of putting together the financial proposal and and being willing to have those difficult conversations with the brand's accounting team and CFO in many cases to understand how they're treating returned goods today. Um, every brand handles it a little bit different from a financial perspective. Some it's pure write-offs, some it's not. In many cases, that write-off can be baked into the um, the cost of their mainline sales. And so that cost recovery isn't necessarily attractive to them. So every brand handles this a bit differently. And, and that's where having that detailed um, financial analysis and doing that that kind of grunt work with uh, your champion at, at the brand that you're pursuing really pays off um, and can result in a win. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is that, is that each brand has, is their financial incentive is different because one might be, we just don't want our stuff showing up in the landfill, right? That's an incentive. And the financial cost associated with that is a marketing PR bucket yes. of money, right? And then there's another one who says, look, we've got great, we've got, as you've said in the past, we've got all of this inventory from last season that didn't sell. Now we can write it off or here's a way that we can put it out into the system and generate a revenue. So that's get it out of the warehouse, get it into a market that might want it. And then yeah, you've got right. the, so that's a whole different fi financial incentive, right? And then you've got the whole, okay, people want to give us this stuff back. And now what do we do yeah, with the it? The trade-in model. Yeah. The trade-in model. Trade model. Mm -hmm. and, and so what I'm hearing you say is that some of these vendors, brands might not even know, right? Because all three of those might exist inside a single organization. Yes. Is it possible that they're not talking to each other because they're each coming at it from a different angle or is there a comprehensive re-commerce, chief re-commerce office? Yeah. Not only is it possible, but I would say nine out of 10 times that's the case is that they're not talking to each other. And and what we see more often than not is um, we see, and this is unfortunate and you know, hopefully the ties will turn on this and there will be more kind of chief uh, re-commerce officer type roles. Um, but more often than not, we see brands decide to simply not move forward with a re-commerce program than choosing a vendor. So if, if, if we supported, I'm just thinking this calendar year, so we're in September 2023, We've been, we've had some level of involvement in let's say 30 brand pursuits and defined by the fact that we're in like a third conversation, right? So 30 times we've worked with clients this calendar year to get from cold call to second call to like third conversation where you've got real, you know, decision makers in, in the mix. Um, I would say almost 90% of those resulted in the brand just choosing to not do anything because they, they, they can't get enough internal alignment to figure out how to move forward. So it wasn't like they chose vendor A over vendor B. They chose to not choose a vendor and to not launch a program, at least not this calendar year. Well, that's probably and, the and biggest. And that to me is, what's I that? I say that's probably one of the biggest competitors. That's yeah. it's not that you're competing against one of these other vendors. 
you're competing no. to do nothing. Correct. Yeah. And what we see is, you know, you have the dreamers and then you have the analytical people and they really need to jive together to make this happen. And, you know, the dreamers are the ones that are proactively reaching out to us or reaching out to providers. And the analytical folks are, you know, dialed straight into the ROI and the level of effort it, it, it would be to, you know, stand up a program like this. And they're often there's just not that middle person. And, you know, we've played that roles when we worked for brands in the past, um, you know, Nate specifically, but that's really like, I think we've mentioned it in a previous um, episode where, you know, there's a translator that needs to be in place. Mm -hmm. And um, that translator helps the dreamers kind of, you know, have some realistic expectations or understand how an operation could work. And then you have typically the finance team who their role is, you know, some of these accountants where, you know, they're looking at limiting costs and, you know, putting those two very different humans in a room and coming up with a solution is imperative. And that's really kind of the magic in, in some of this here is, you know, having the dreamers and the analytics talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And coming back to how we started, and that is having a vendor walk into the room. And understanding, okay, which one of those two people are you talking to? Are you talking to the yep. dreamer? Or are you pitching a solution to the finance person? Because I think now it's becoming clear why there's these nuanced differences between each vendor, because inside the organization, they are possibly making a value proposition pitch to a different decision maker based on, yep. correct. right? Is this a, is this a, a, a optics thing where we keep out of the landfill or is this a... Uh, inventory thing where we move things down and that's going to be a different pit. Is that is that fairly accurate? While the vendors are coming in, they're each looking for that different angle. And so you're helping them understand how to tell that whole story. Yeah. It, and, um, you know, to Jess's point earlier, you've got, you know, a lot of these leading brands have sustainability teams um, that are out there, you know, looking for these types of options. Um, so they tend to fall into that bucket that we call like the, you know, the dreamers in the organization, they kind of want, they want their, uh, carbon neutral cake and they want to eat it too. Um, and that's okay. Cause that's, you know, that's their remit in those positions. Um, and often, but, sorry. And yeah. often those are the people that have the most passion. Yes. So yes, it's great to work with them, but also the least they, power. <laughs> <laughs> often yeah. They don't, they don't have the level of influence in an organization. Um, unfortunately, given their level of passion. Yeah. And then you see this other kind of weird entry point into these pursuits where, because again, there's only a handful of providers in the space right now. Um, you know, the CEO of provider X may have a relationship to so-and-so at a company and, and they leverage that relationship to get an initial conversation. And, and you know, the, the pursuit kind of comes in through the back door and then it, and it just ends up in a you know, I've, I've been part of brand pursuits where we have completely thrown out and rebuilt the pitch deck two or three times, uh, you know, each time almost like a different pitch based on the audience uh, because they're they're so kind of different in what they're really looking for. What would you say then as we, um, as we approach the end here, what would be some pieces of advice to give to those vendors when they're, if they finally get the cold call or even the cold pitch, what do yeah. What advice can we give them to help them be possibly getting to the table so that they can be in part of the conversation? Yeah, I, I think you, um, 
you've got to figure out how to make yourself stand out from the crowd. And I think the way you do that is you have to communicate to that prospective client pretty boldly. I what think you have, I think you have to get early in the conversation. You have to be willing to say, this is what we think you need. And this is how we can service that need. And that is, um, you know, it, in the world of like sales and prospecting is probably like not great advice. Uh, but in the world of e-commerce sales and prospecting, where you have this kind of inverse market where you've got literally a handful of, uh, of providers going after the same serviceable market, um, you, you've got to, you can't get bogged down in like kind of giving your vanilla elevator pitch over and over and over again, because most of the content of that elevator pitch is, I mean, let's be honest, it's exaggerated because all these brands are startups. So they've been, they've spent years pitching to investors and we all, if anyone sat in a, in a venture investment boardroom and listened to pitches, like we all know it's, a, it's always like the rosiest possible, you know, vision of the future. And so the brands are, it's a version of Shark Tank, right? Yes, it's it's Shark Tank. And um, if you want to make yourself stand out, you've you've got to skip past the like painting the rosy picture and and do your homework on a brand and and form a perspective on what you think they need and tailor your pitch to that need. And and I I think the result of that is that it's probably a 50-50 shot, but at least you can understand very quickly if that client, that prospective client is aligned with the services that you want to offer them. It makes me think about, uh, if I was to get an email that says, are you thinking about having, solving this problem? It's like, that's not the, it's no, you've got this problem and we've got the solution. Give us a yes. call, right? It's a yep. very much different. You need to be much more, I think that's only by the, the uh, direct, yeah. bold, hey, look, we can solve this problem. We know you have it. Uh, you might not even know what your next step is, but we can step in and help you. Yeah. Any other then as we, as we kind of wrap up another, so it's started, you know what, how about in the next episode, we talk about, um, a little bit about the, the investor side, these startups, because you've brought up an interesting yeah. point that we really haven't dived into, dove into dive in with, we know what I mean. It's yeah, like, dove. all right, how yeah. do I pick a vendor? That's got a long-term success because the last thing you want to do is make an investment this year and then next year suddenly you're back to the drawing board. Worse than the drawing board, you've put in a system yeah. that now is missing the critical yeah. components. We should talk about that next time. Yep. We can definitely do that. We've um, we've supported many uh, venture firms in the last 18 months in um, you know, in making these types of investment decisions and, and it's just equally relevant for the types of decision criteria that we would advise a brand to use looking at a, at a provider. This has been another episode of the Circular Innovation Podcast. I am Richard Bliss, the co-host, joined by Nate and Jess. And uh, we think you've probably listened to some interesting information. Tune in next time for our next episode because we're really going to talk about the investment side as the startups are looking to help solve a critical component that brands are faced with. Uh, it becomes a kind of a joint effort to approach that. So thanks for listening. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Circular Innovation Podcast. Join us again as we continue to explore and unravel the complexities of circular innovation.